Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy Angel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. The wisest and most knowing man cannot comprehend the works of God, the methods and designs of his providence in the creation and government of the world are unknown to him. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered today. We're going back to the 18th century in England to hear a sermon by Joseph Butler. Troy, how are you doing over there? I'm doing well. I was missing my cue here. I'm here. Jill, let us take a look at some positive responses we have had uh, to some of our more recent episodes. Uh, Nick G on our John Darby episode on Spotify uh, said, Darby is often disqualified from any biblical discussion simply because he dared to study and think about things in a different way. I'm thankful for his ministry and for the both of you. Phil on Facebook on our David Guzik episode said, very interesting episode, loved it. Church history is certainly important and very weird. So there we go. Again, some comments. We'd love to hear from you guys when we can, and we try to give you all some shout outs when you guys leave a little something for us. We appreciate it. Now we're talking about Joseph Butler. I'm a good fan of Joseph Butler's because I have used some of his arguments in my class. And we'll talk about what that means in a minute. But he has made some books that he's written some arguments for God that are actually really useful. I teach students and a lot of times they have questions about God and they will have struggles that they will have basically like, well, if God is good, um, how can he send people to hell? And, you know, how can people ever be deserving of that? And I have found that Joseph Butler has a few arguments that have been very helpful for me to kind of explain um, why that why God could possibly do that and why it's actually very reasonable to think about it. So uh, we'll get into some of those just in a minute. That's right. Joseph Butler, born in the year 1692 in England. His parents were linen drapers, but they sent Butler from an early age off to the course of ministry. They wanted him to grow up as a man of the cloth. And so uh, being Presbyterians, they sent him to a school for dissenters, that is, people that were against the, the Church of England. Now, this academy was prestigious, and it was expected that he would be a great minister in this tradition. However, uh, something in him began to question what he was being taught, and he started uh, secretly sending letters to a philosopher and a priest in the Anglican Church, uh, one named Samuel Clark. After a time, he uh, and a friend decided to then join the Church of England, a controversial move, uh, to say the least. Yeah, normally in our show, we probably would cover the people who leave the Church of England or who resisted going to the Church of England. Uh, but we do have, we've had some people who are from the Church of England on before, probably most famous, J.C. Ryle. Uh, so it's not uncommon. He became a bishop now in the year 1718. He did a good job as a bishop, kind of rose to the ranks. And according to legend, he was offered the position to be the Archbishop of Canterbury, but that he actually turned it down. And that's pretty much like one of the best positions you could get in the Church of England, especially at that time. Um, and that the friend, that we said he went to friend with a school and him and a friend were kind of starting to question what they believed. And that friend actually got that position. He would become the Archbishop of Canterbury. So he, he and this friend both did very well for themselves in the Church of England. Now, whether it is true or not that he actually got offered the position, that can't be validated. But it's, it's the legend is it was offered to him. Now, he did resi- reach the position called the Clerk of the Closet. And I'll be honest with you. 
in all of our time doing revived thoughts, I have never heard of the clerk, clerk of the closet. Uh, this sounded like the bishop you put over jackets, and he's like, he, you know, he gets to choose what you wear in the pulpit. Um, and I kind of wish that's what it was. That would be kind of funny if that was like a really high up position. Coat keeper. However, no, it. Yeah, he's he's the dude. He, you, oh my goodness, is that is that guy wearing socks? Let's get the clerk of the closet in here to clean this up. Um, <laughs> However, no, that's not what's going on in the Anglican Church. This is basically the guy who tells the king like his suggestions for who should have important positions. So he's he's uh, kind of your he's kind of like you know if you imagine like a president in the United States picking his cabinet. From what I could tell, the guy in charge of the clerk of the closet is is giving his recommendation from the Church of England's perspective. Here's who we think you should put in the in the high positions. Um, and some of these positions will be over members of the Church of England. So the king gets the final say, but the clerk of the closet is doing the work of vetting and telling you, hey, these are the guys you want. So that's a really important job. Like, I mean, that is obviously going to be highly and hugely influential over who is, you know, how, the, how all of this turns out. So this is a pretty big deal. But this is not what Butler is remem- remembered for. He is remembered, and it's not for these things. He's in- and remembered because a big controversy really erupts during his age, and he goes to bat to put it down. He says, no, no, we're not going in that direction. Yeah, so during this age, the Church of England and really a lot of churches in the area were were dealing with this debate, this controversy um, of what is called deism. A lot of churches in the area were leaning into it Many philosophers at this time uh, were proposing this idea, the idea that God exists, but the God in the Bible is not him. Like there's, they, they couldn't justify their existence without a deity of some sort. Uh, so they would say that, you know, it allows them to answer the tough questions about how we're here, why we're here. Uh, but it gives them an out as far as uh, being loyal or recognizing the authority of the God of the Bible. And uh, deism was becoming very popular all across Europe. You got to believe in God, but uh, you didn't have to believe in the visions or the angels, the prophecies. Uh, you, give, you know, it would allow you to have a peace about your existence without getting to know God on a, on a personal level, without having that personal relationship with him. France and Germany were getting pretty deep into deism during this time. And part of the reason that England did not join them was, uh, is, is often attributed towards the work Butler did on the issue. Now, of course, another big reason was the Great Awakening. So we're not taking away from the many ways God provided. But Joseph Butler's work was used in that intellectual academic sphere to really combat this deism that was, that's going to become a giant like plague over Europe for the next hundred years. Um, he wrote the book called The Analogy of Nature, often called Butler's Analogy. This book is still studied by philosophy classes even to this day. Uh, and he argued from this book that the deists don't avoid any of the arguments God about against God, but in fact, they actually just put themselves in a more hopeless situation. So basically, the deists kind of thought they had a get-out-of-trouble card here. Like, we can say God made the universe, he put the atoms together, but he didn't make, you know, the visions, the angels, and all that stuff. So the hard parts of the Bible, in their mind, are those supernatural things, but the part of God making the world, that part you can keep. So you're kind of, you, you got kind of almost a foot on both sides. You're safe from, you know, being an atheist and having to deal with the hopelessness of no one made us, we're all just meaningless. Uh, but you also get to deal with, you don't have to deal with defending angels and scripture and miracles. 
And Butler's argument, and he uses this book to basically go, no, you are actually in, you're, you didn't save yourself from this. You actually put yourself in a worse situation uh, than pretty much any other side. Now, one of the most powerful arguments that I have personally found is his argument for why hell should exist. And this is one that I have used in my classes. So many times students will raise their hands and be like, how is it fair for anyone to be sent to hell? And Butler uses all of his arguments he tries to use in this book from nature. And he goes, well, imagine a farmer. You have a farmer and he decides one year, I'm not going to plant any seeds. I'm not going to take care of the field. I'm not going to do anything. And a whole year goes by, it's harvest time, and he has obviously no food. And if that farmer gets saved by his neighbors and they come together, they rally around him, they give him food, they help feed him through the winter, great. That's good. But if not, and this farmer who didn't do what he was supposed to do starves, is it unjustified? You know, and, he's, and when I use that, I mean, every student always goes, yeah, of course, that makes sense. He should have probably, you know, planted his field. And Butler basically says, yeah, and that's right. You have physical consequences for your physical actions, right? If you choose not to take care of your field, you cannot be surprised then when there's no food come harvest time. In the same way, there are spiritual consequences for spiritual actions. If you choose not to get right with God, if you do not make any effort to know the Lord of your creator, you can't be surprised then if there's a spiritual consequence for that action. Just like the farmer who didn't plant his field, you did not do what you were supposed to do, and now you're reaping the consequence of your actions. And I have found that that argument has been very effective at students just kind of I, I, just going, oh, that makes total sense. Okay, I get it. Sorry, it's, it's kind of funny in my notes. The next line in my notes just says Butler died, which is a little bit <laughs> anticlimactic. I feel like Butler dead now. <laughs> but Butler died, um, which is true. Uh, we didn't have a great segue into it until later years, but <laughs> Butler Sorry, it wasn't would have an been... exciting death. It was just kind of like, and that's when he died. And I was like, okay. And yeah, he he eventually. I mean, no shocker. It's kind of a, a rite of passage to be on this show. You have to be dead. So. Uh, Butler died, uh, but even later generations would admit that uh, Butler's work uh, was powerful and made a powerful argument for God. David Hume, uh, a skeptical philosopher, even edited his own works in the hopes that Butler would approve them because he was so impressed by Butler's arguments. Now we're going to listen to a sermon that he wrote about the ignorance of men. applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the labor that is done on earth, people getting no sleep day or night, then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they cannot truly comprehend it. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verses 16 and 17. The writings of Solomon are reflections upon human nature and human life. However, upon this careful review, he expresses great ignorance of the works of God and the method of his providence in the government of the world. Great work and weariness in the search and observation he had put into this project, and great disappointment, 
pain, and even frustration of his thoughts were the reward for his searching out the appearances of things. He wrote extensively on what was happening upon this earth. This whole review and inspection, and the result of it, brought sorrow, perplexity, and a sense of his own necessary ignorance to him and the reader. But despite all of his ignorance and dissatisfaction, there is something on which he assuredly rests and depends. Here is the conclusion of the whole matter, and the only concern of man. Let us look at two points. One, the assertion of the text, the ignorance of man that the wisest and most knowing cannot comprehend the ways and works of God. And then, two, what are the proper consequences of this observation of the knowledge of our own ignorance and the reflections which it leads us to? One, the wisest and most knowing man cannot comprehend the works of God, the methods and designs of his providence in the creation and government of the world are unknown to him, Creation is absolutely and entirely out of our depth. It is beyond the depths of our deepest studies. And yet, it is as certain that God made the world as it is certain that effects must have a cause. It is, in fact, usually just effects that the most studied are acquainted with. For, as to causes, the causes are as entirely in the dark to the learned as they are to the most ignorant man who has never studied. What are the laws by which matter acts upon matter but certain effects, which some, having been observed to be frequently repeated, have now been reduced to general rules? The real nature and essence of beings likewise is what we are altogether ignorant of. All these things are so entirely out of our reach that we have not even the slightest glimpse of them, and we know little more about ourselves than we do of the world around us. How were we made? How is our being continued and preserved? What are the abilities and limits of our minds? I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows right well. Our own nature and the objects we are surrounded with serve to raise our curiosity, but we are quite out of a condition of being able to perfectly explain it. Every secret which is learned, every discovery which is made, every new effect which is brought into view serves to convince us of a numberless more which still remains hidden, and which we had before no awareness of. And even if we were acquainted with the whole of creation, in the same way and as thoroughly as we are with any single object in it, what would all this natural knowledge amount to? It would have to be a low curiosity indeed which such superficial knowledge could satisfy. On the contrary, would it not serve to convince us of our ignorance still? and to raise our desire of knowing the deeper nature of things themselves. We would know all of this information, and we would still need to know the author of it. After all, what is the reason for all of this? This surely should convince us that we are much less competent judges of the very small part which comes under our notice in the world than we often imagine ourselves to be. No heart can think upon these things worthily, and who is able to conceive his way? It is a storm which no man can see, for the most part of his works are hidden. Who can declare the works of his justice? For his covenant is far away, and the trial of all things is in the end. The dealings of God with the children of men have not yet been completed, and cannot be judged by that part which is before us. So that a man cannot say, This is worse than that, for in time they will be well approved. 
Your faithfulness, O Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your righteousness stands like the strong mountains. Your judgments are like the mighty oceans. He has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has set the world in their heart, so that no man can find out the work that God makes from the beginning to the end. And so, St. Paul concludes a long argument upon the various dispensations of providence. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, and his ways beyond our own understanding! For who has known the mind of the Lord? So, the scheme of providence, the ways and works of God, are too vast, of too large an extent for our minds. There is, as I may speak, such an expanse of power and wisdom and goodness in the formation and design of the world that is too much for us to take in or comprehend. Power and wisdom and goodness are displayed to us in all those works of God which come within our view, but there are likewise infinite amounts of each poured forth throughout the immensity of the creation, and no part of which can be completely understood without recognizing it is just one piece of the whole. And this is what we lack the ability to do, see the whole of creation as it truly is. And just as the works of God are above our capacities to comprehend, so there may possibly even be reasons which originally made it right that many things should be hidden from us. Things which we have, perhaps, natural capacities even to understand. It is not crazy to think that a veil was purposely drawn over some scenes of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness, the sight of which might some way or another strike us too strongly. Or could it be that we were better off not knowing every reason for the design of this world, that being exposed to some knowledge would actually be harmful to us? The Almighty may cast clouds and darkness around himself for reasons and purposes of which we may not be given even the least glimpse of understanding for. However, it is surely reasonable and what might have even been expected, that creatures in some stage of their being, suppose in the infancy of it, should be placed in a state of learning and improvement, that their patience and submission is to be tried by suffering, and temptations are to be resisted, and difficulties gone through in the following of their duty. Religion consists in submission and resignation to the divine will. Our condition in this world is a school of exercise to grow in our attitude of submission. And our ignorance, the shallowness of our reason, the temptations, difficulties, afflictions which we are exposed to all equally contribute to teach us to become submissive to Christ's will. Sometimes the faith is tried, and people wonder if more evidence or knowledge would make it better. Yet Christ often asks us to believe when the evidence is less, which, though it causes great difficulty, is seen also as a better faith. This fully accounts for and explains that assertion of our Savior, Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. It is a blessing for those who have become Christians and obeyed the gospel upon less empirical evidence than that which Thomas had in seeing Christ. But after all, the same explanation can be given as to why we were placed in these circumstances of ignorance as to why nature has not blessed us with wings. Namely, that we were designed to be inhabitants of this earth. I am afraid we think too highly of ourselves, of our rank in the creation, and of what is due to us. What sphere of action, what business is assigned to man, that he does not have the abilities and knowledge fully equal to do them? It is shown to us that he has reason and knowledge and skills superior to the business of the present world. These abilities would appear superfluous 
if we do not take in the respect that they have something further to do, and beyond it. If acquiring knowledge is our primary end, we would indeed be poorly provided. But if something else is our business and duty, we may, despite our ignorance, be well equipped for it. And the observation of our ignorance may be of assistance to us in the duty of what we are actually meant to do. 2. Now let us consider what are the consequences of this knowledge and the reflection it leads us to. First, we learn from it the kind of mind a man needs to inquire into the subject of religion, mainly that it is with the expectation of finding difficulties and with an attitude to take up and rest satisfied with any evidence that he finds. He should beforehand expect things to be mysterious and expect that he will not be able to completely comprehend everything. To expect a unique and comprehensive view of the whole subject without any difficulties or objections is to forget our own nature. Recognizing the general ignorance of man would also create in us an attitude to take up and rest satisfied with any evidence we find which is real. I mention this as contrary to an attitude, which many have, to find fault with and reject evidence because it is not exactly what was desired. If a man is walking at twilight, doesn't he have to follow his eyes as much as if it were broad day and clear sunshine? Or if he had to take a journey by night, wouldn't he give heed to any light shining in the darkness till the day should break and the day star arise? It would not be altogether unnatural for him to reflect how much better it would be to have daylight. He might perhaps have great curiosity to see the country all around him. He might lament that the darkness hides many objects and beautiful horizons from his eyes, and wish for the sun to draw away the veil. But how ridiculous it would be to reject with scorn and disdain the guidance and direction which that lesser light the moon might give him simply because it was not the sun itself. If the frame of man affords the least hint that virtue is the law he is born under, skepticism itself should lead him to the most strict and careful practice of virtue. For a skeptic should know not to make the dreadful experiment of leaving the course of life marked out for him by nature, whatever that nature is, and entering paths of his own creation ones which he won't know the dangers that go along with it, nor the end of it. For though no danger is seen, yet darkness, ignorance, and blindness are no manner of security. Secondly, our own ignorance is the proper answer to many things which are called objections against religion. Since the constitution of nature and the methods and designs of providence in the government of the world are above our comprehension, we should trust in and rest satisfied with our ignorance. We should turn our thoughts from that which is above and beyond us and apply ourselves to that which is actually at our level and which is our real business and concern. Knowledge is not our proper happiness. Whoever studies even a little can see that it is the gaining, not the having of it, which is the entertainment of the mind. Indeed, if the proper happiness of man consisted in knowledge, considered as a possession or treasure, men who are possessed of the largest share would have a very rough time of it, for they would be infinitely more aware than others of their complete lack of knowledge in this respect. So he who increases knowledge would, eminently, increase sorrow. Men of deep research and curious inquiry should remember not to mistake what they are doing. 
If their discoveries serve the cause of virtue and religion in the way of proof, or as motivation to practice virtue, or assistance in it, then they have done well. Or if they tend to render life less unhappy and promote its satisfaction, then they are doing something useful. But bringing things to light, alone and of itself, is of no more use as anything other than as an entertainment or diversion. This does not make it wrong if it does not take up the time which should be employed in better works. But it is evident that there is another mark set up for us to aim at, another goal appointed for us to direct our lives to, an end which the most knowing may fail and the most ignorant may arrive at. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. This reflection of Moses, put in general terms, is that the only knowledge which is of any use to us is that which teaches us our duty, or assists us in the discharge of it. The work of the universe, the course of nature, almighty power exerted in the creation and government of the world is out of our reach. And what would be the consequence if we could get deeper insight into these things? Would we be better off for knowing these secret things? Would it assist us in, or likely divert us, from the work we have to do in this present state? If there is good work for us to do, and knowledge for us to find, we ought surely to apply ourselves with all diligence to this. We must do our proper business, and esteem everything else nothing, nothing as to us, in comparison to the work God calls us to do. In this way Job, speaking on natural knowledge, how much it is above us, and of wisdom in general, says, God understands the way of it, and he knows the place, and for man he said, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Other types of creatures may perhaps be led into the secret councils of heaven, and have the designs and methods of providence in the creation and government of the world communicated to them, but this does not belong to our rank or condition. The fear of the Lord, and to depart from evil, is the only wisdom which man should aspire after as his work and business. The same is said, and with the same connection and context, in the conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes. Our ignorance, and the little we can know of higher things, gives us reason why we should not perplex ourselves about them. But this in no way invalidates that which is the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole concern of man. So that Socrates was not the first who endeavored to draw men off from laboring after and laying stress upon other knowledge in comparison of that which related to morals. Our province is virtue and religion, life and manners, the science of improving the temper and making the heart better. This is the field assigned for us to cultivate. How much it has lain neglected is actually astonishing. Virtue is demonstrably the happiness of man. It consists in good actions, proceeding from a good principle, temper, or heart. Outward acts are entirely in our power. What remains is that we learn to keep our heart, to govern and regulate our passions, mind, affections, that so we may be free from the impotencies of fear, envy, malice, covetousness, ambition, that we may be clear of these, considered as vices seated in the heart, considered as constituting a general wrong temper, from which general wrong frame of mind, all the mistaken pursuits, and far the greatest part of the unhappiness of life, proceed. 
he who should find out one rule to assist us in this work would deserve infinitely better of mankind than all the improvers of other knowledge put together. Lastly, let us adore that infinite wisdom and power and goodness which is above our comprehension. To whom has the root of wisdom been revealed, or who has known her wise counsels? There is one wise and greatly to be feared, the Lord sitting upon his throne. He created her and saw her and numbered her and poured her out upon all his works. If it is thought a considerable thing to be acquainted with a few, a very few, of the effects of infinite power and wisdom, the method, size, and revolution of some of the heavenly bodies, for example, then what sentiments should our minds be filled with concerning him who appointed to each its place and measured the sphere of motion and made sure all have kept with the most uniform consistency? Who stretches out the heavens and tells the number of the stars and calls them all by their names? Who laid the foundations of the earth? Who comprehends the dust of it in a measure and weighs the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? And when we have recounted all the appearances which come within our view, we must add, Lo, these are part of his ways, but how little a portion is heard of him. Can you by searching find God? Can you find out the Almighty for perfection? It is as high as heaven. What can you do? Deeper than hell, what can you know? The conclusion is that in a humble state of mind, we think less of ourselves, that we set our attitudes to an implicit submission to the divine majesty, create within ourselves an absolute resignation to all the methods of his providence in his dealings with the children of men, that in the deepest humility of our souls, we prostrate ourselves before him and join in that celestial song, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, you King of Saints. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? Okay, so one thing that I really enjoyed about this sermon, and it's not just this sermon, it's actually been kind of coming up, it's a recurring theme lately. Uh, and just different sermons and things we worked with this year. Uh, but there's just this kind of this idea Butler says of like, you don't have all the answers and that's okay. Like how, how why, human, you have just enough to do what you need to do. You don't need to know everything else. And this comes up in another sermon really in a big way um, that we will have coming out here soon, I hope. Uh, but it's just this idea that in, in Butler almost slips out his head. We have so many people who are always exploring and asking questions, and so many people who are, you know, I don't. Why doesn't God do this? And why doesn't God, why does we spend a lot of time talking heavy theology and lofty ideas? And Butler kind of flips it on his head, and he's like, D "You have more information than you need, because quite frankly, what you should be doing with your life is loving people and helping them." It's like maybe if you spent a little less time trying to read and figure out existentialist questions and questions that can't be answered that God didn't want you to answer even, and spent more time loving your neighbor and doing what you actually are supposed to do, and it, it's it just kind of I don't know it just uh, that that really hit me with like this is so true this is a real thing where people how come to God when I have all the answers and I and you know all these things. And the truth is, we actually already have a lot we're supposed to be doing. There are a lot of us who are collecting information and learning more and learning more, but we should be doing the things we're supposed to do. Our collecting of information and trying to get the answers to all of our questions, is that getting in the way 
of the simple task of just loving our neighbor. Because don't most of us know somebody who could use a, a loving, helpful hand? And if you don't, then that's where you should start, getting to know somebody so that you can find people who need a loving, helpful hand to show that love of Christ to them. And yet, so many times we are chasing answers to philosophical or theological questions. And I know many people who have spent hours looking up these obscure questions, but they forget to show that love to others. And Butler really just challenges us and is like, maybe the reason you're ignorant is because you're supposed to be. And that way you were never supposed to know the answers to all these questions. Not that it's wrong to search, but if that search is getting in the way of other tasks you were already called to do, then yeah, you're in the wrong. And I think that just... I don't know, this idea that we are not created to know everything. In fact, Butler even says, maybe God didn't tell you everything, and maybe he's protecting you. Maybe the reason you don't know the answers to everything is he's trying to keep you from knowing things on purpose. And would you be okay with that if it's true? It's a really interesting way to look at it. It's not the only sermon we have that kind of is pushing this idea. And it's just something I've noticed as a reoccurring theme in studies and different things of just like, man, we need to be okay with not having all the answers. And, uh, and letting God have all the answers and just being content with what we do have and not always constantly going, ah, but God, I need to know what you think on this. And maybe just going, no, I need to do the things that God has already called me to do without looking up every obscure thing. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by David K. Martin. David K. Martin is an audiobook narrator. You can find more of his work at davidkmartin.net. If you enjoyed this episode of Revive Thoughts, we ask you to share it with other people. Let them know about the life of Joseph Butler. Let them hear the sermon and think about the ignorance of men. And, uh, Please just let people know what we're doing here at Revive Thoughts. Our show is always growing and getting new listeners. And so many times it's because you told a friend or you mentioned it at Bible study or you um, told your pastor that you were listening to this new podcast or you are a pastor and you told your congregation. Or It's so many of you who are just getting the word out there. And we really appreciate it and hope that you will continue to share what you're learning uh, and what you've been enjoying about our show with other people. This is Troy and Joel and this is Revive Thoughts. <laughs>